0: Well, Sarah? I'm not disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is good news, because 600 pages. I mean, a commitment. A commitment. A commitment. Welcome, everyone, to Fated Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels, and I write them. And I am Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And this week, we are reading top three book of all time for Kate Claiborne. Laura Kinsale's Flowers from the Storm. Which is a legend. It's a it, This is I mean, a legendary book, yes, absolutely. It is a, a text that is invoked all the time in romance. Um, it is a text that I tried to read when I was a teenager. Oh, interesting, okay. And uh, decided pretty much, like, straight out of the gate... The this thou. was published in 1992. The Thou, Sarah, was not online yet. Listen, I can remember trying this when I was like 15 or 16 and being like, what even is happening here? And I put it down and then I told myself I was not a kid's fan, And like, not for any reason other than, like, not because I, like, didn't like it or didn't. It just was not for me. The Thou... This Quaker, this Quaker and this Duke with <laughs> aphasia after a stroke. I think, and in in hindsight, you know, from this side of 40, I think sometimes there are books that just don't speak to you when you're a teenager. And then when you're a grown woman who's lived a life, you're like, oh, wait a second. Now I get it. Well, and... You know, this is true of all books, right? I mean, like, there's a real way in which reading this book felt like there was a grown-up in the room. And there mm. are ways, like, right, I teach at a middle school I, that, like, my school's K-12. to And sometimes my high school English department colleagues tell me the books that they're having kids read. And I'm just like, why? Like, why? What is what is a, a child getting out of reading Beloved? <laughs> right you know what i mean i mean these are books that like like these are books that when you read them again as adults you're like oh i really did was not ready for gatsby <laughs> yeah know? i mean gatsby's a great example right i mean there's there are gatsby's one of those books that we assigned to teenagers because it's not actually that difficult to read but then like Yeah, you read it as an adult. When you read it at forty five, you're like, "Holy crap, this is doing a completely different thing." Yeah, and I think that's what's happening here with Flowers from the Storm. Yeah, Um, I agree. I agree. So we didn't even banter at all because I feel like at six hundred pages. Yeah, right. We we got things to discuss for banter. I don't even know. No, no space Um, for banter. Join our Patreon and we'll banter in November. Yeah, there you go. Okay, because I have. Some things on my list to talk about that Kate Claiborne is not going to be so excited about. <laughs> She's going to be like, wait, why are we talking about that? So let me tell you, I, I do not have a memory of reading Kinsale or trying to read Kinsale. I mean, I think, you know, as always, as romance readers, there's like the – romance is so vast, it's easy to miss things, right? Yeah, especially a text like this where, like, you picked it up and then you put it down. I mean, it is so dense, and it does I've realized i I had this moment about I don't know I started it on a plane, um which is where I do much of my like homework reading because i you you're a you know i don't you' I, right. I just have this one book, and it's me in in the dark <laughs> on a plane, and about three or four chapters in, I hit a stride, right and then i was like oh it's like shakespeare like you you know you then you sort of fall into it and you think this is exactly it's it's just beautiful it's a beautiful read but you do if you are kind of a newer romance reader or a reader who you know doesn't really do the dense texts you got to you're going to have to commit to this one well and i think for me so i read it this summer Um, I had a copy of it and I was just kind of like, I don't know, like you get in those ruts, right? And I was like, look, Kate loves this book. She swears by this book. Yeah, we've been talking about it for so long. Yeah, like now is like, let me just give this a shot. And, you know, the thing I thought, like fair or not, is the complexity of this text, both at the story level and at the sentence level is demanding, right? And I enjoyed that feeling, right? I just did. I enjoyed yeah, that feeling. It and feels like, in the immortal words of Harry Styles, it feels like you're really reading a book. Right. <laughs> I mean, the last, and and I and you know what? Books like that are really memorable for me. Like, I yeah. remember when I started Wolf Hall and was like, yeah. oh, I'm reading something right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, and I don't know about you, but like, I did not read this in one day. No. Like, uh-uh. this no. is not a book you blow through. no. 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 And then when I was rereading, I was going to tell you, I actually started a chapter 10. I was like, I'm going to actually not be available to read about him being tortured by the ape in the insane asylum. Okay. I mean, that's fine. I mean, we all know I really enjoyed it. Oh, of course. You were like, (laughs) I love this part. And I was like, I'm a delicate flower, flower from the storm. Too sad for me. Poor man. So, all right. So do we want to do a quick, do a quick. Do we want to do an <laughs> overview of, like, this book? So, you know what, everybody, if you're struggling summarization, there's a kick, you know, I mean, t- teach what I teach the children, somebody wanted, but so, right? Chervaux <laughs> wanted Chervo. to just be a rich, lackadaisical Duke, um, but he had a stroke. He just wanted to cat around. <laughs> cat Tom, around. cat around. Right, but he had Sleep a Sleep with married ladies. So his family put him into an insane asylum because nobody knew what like any medical things were. And they also were hoping to steal all of his money. Mm -hmm. And then along comes Maddie, Maddie girl, this Quaker good, goody two shoes. Well, wait, they've already met. Yes, that's true. Because Chervo, before he has a stroke, is a genius mathematician, as is Maddie's deaf father. I mean, Kintel really leans in here. Blind? Blind. I'm sorry. Not deaf, blind, father. So they are mathematicians, and they are working together on a paper. So Maddie has met him, and she just she is so Quakery. Oh yeah, <laughs> that like she just cannot with this man no. and his like lace cuffs and his like posh life and his money and his power and his and his his grace and your grace. She is a full on Quaker. Yeah. And he is very – he's not rude to her, but she knows he's, that he's making fun of her. hmm yeah. And so um, her cousin owns this asylum, which apparently, by the way, everybody is like, you know, the best run. The nice saying one. This. Yeah, this is the nice one. But guess what? Even back then, even the nice yeah, one was a bad right. one. Yeah. And so she goes to work at her cousin's asylum and the cousin and, is like pretty relaxed and groovy. Yeah, his name is Edmund, and he's like not terrible. Like, he really does think he's doing forward thinking, like medicine on behalf of his patients. And she finds Chervaux there, and he is being. So, and a lot of people think he's dead, by the way. Yes, like, right. Like, his family is. Yeah, exactly. So maybe you could tell this part since I didn't reread it. She no. finds him in this she finds terrible him in the place. asylum and it is and it is a terrible place, and they think that he is a violent like yes. criminal mind. They right. think he has um, descended into, you know some kind of madness. Uh, and he, uh, he does not speak and he is just angry all the time. and uh, <laughs> and uh, he is he is abused by the, and tortured by the, by his kind of guard at the asylum, um, who he and Maddie kind of quickly name Ape. Um, and Maddie learns quickly, Maddie instantly recognizes him and remembers, of course, that he's a genius mathematician and, uh, we'll get there, but Uh, she realizes pretty quickly that he is not in fact descended into madness and he is able to communicate, but he is not able to communicate, you know, tremendously verbally. Uh, But he can communicate through math and prove that he is sane. Um, So then it's sort of a a battle to prove to the rest of the world that he is sane, that he should not be in this asylum. Um, And they Uh, So they, you know, work together to get to get him out of the asylum. Um, And eventually they uh, they escape. He escapes the asylum and he kind of kidnaps her like it's it's not really a kidnapping. It's like a light kidnapping. Well, it's interesting. He has to go back to London. Yes, they go to his friend. Well, he'd have to go back to London first to have a hearing, right? Like there's going to be this hearing to judge his competency. And it's at this part, it's at this point that, like, he's Maddie can see the dramatic improvement that he's making, right, in mm. terms of his ability to Because and speak. He's gone from nonverbal to some kind of verbal. Yeah, and um, but then what his essentially his his mother and his sisters and their and his brothers in law want to put him back. They're afraid of him, but mostly we understand they want his money. Plus, there's a big, big estate. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, it's huge, right? I mean, he's the most powerful duke or whatever, the oldest duke. Yeah, I mean, classic, right? He's like the first duke, right? (laughs) Um, and it's his aunt, right? Yeah, his brother's his dad's sister who is, has her eye instead on the prize of, like, continuing the line. And she kind of, you know, does some machinations and is basically like, Chervo, if you marry, we can put off this competency hearing for six months and you can get married and you can have a, a, a sire, like, sire child, and I promise you, you will never go back there. Right. Because right? at that point, a duchess will have enough power yes. to be able to say, my husband... Is it doesn't right. it goes nowhere. He goes right. nowhere. Right. Problem is, he doesn't want to marry. They don't. He doesn't want to marry the person that they that yeah. they want him to marry. And that poor girl. I mean, she wants. She gets the hell out of Dodge real fast. Well, it um, is, and Maddie yeah. is with him. He's she's his companion, and they're obviously falling for each other. And you guys, this is like two hundred pages into yeah. this book, and I mean, it reminded me a lot of Lord of Scoundrels in this way, in that like. At this point, you're like, how could this po- – I think I texted you. I was like, we're get, we're married now. So anyway, long story short, she- he convinces Maddie to marry him instead. I mean, and it is long story short here. And then yeah. he and Maddie <laughs> get married, and that's like 250 pages in. And then you're looking at this – you're holding this book. You're like, there's another 250 pages. No, 300 right. pages of this book. So – where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? And in the immortal here? words of Kate Claiborne, we just get our hearts ripped out. Yeah. That's what happens yeah. next. Well, and so they head to Wales. Yeah, and it's just, to me, this is the part, so they go to his ancestral and state where he feels safest. To hide. Right, to hide, and to, for him to sort of recover. And it's there that then, like, to me, one of the most, and we don't have to talk about it now, we'll get there, like a really fascinating inversion happens because the big threat then becomes that his family is they don't care that he is out they want that money and they're going to do anything they can to essentially destabilize the entire dukedom in essentially what's like a smash and grab mm-hmm. and so they've convinced all of his yes. lenders and partners and lawyers and everything that he is incompetent yes and so the money is now disappeared yes and they won't he Maddie, can't access it yeah who's so quakery Starts to see the ledgers and she starts to flip out because as a Quaker, she's not supposed to have these sort of what she refers to as creaturely comforts. Yeah. Let alone creaturely comforts at that level. Yeah. Right? Uh, Being a duchess. Yeah. So... It's so anyway, that's that's it. It's like, right? Like the last two hundred pages become this The last like hundred pages is Maddie dealing with her. Can I reconcile my desire to be with him with my Quakerness? Which we'll get to. So there are also ghosts and um more Quakers <laughs> and um dogs. Sure. Dogs, and yeah. Friends. Kittens. Yeah, right. kittens. Good times, everybody. So it's so so it's a big, this is a big book. This is a book that has it has a lot of story yes. to it. Yes. There are a lot of moving parts. There are definitely some moments where I was like, hang on a second, now we're going down this rabbit hole. Like there is a there's a there's a uh, an illegitimate daughter who turns up. Um, You know, a mistress who, of course, you know, what's fascinating about it is Kinsale lays a lot of, uh, she lays down a lot of breadcrumbs in the first hundred pages and then really seamlessly picks them all up and like knits them into the back end of the book. This book is just attempting something way bigger than a lot of books attempt right now, right? Yeah. I mean I I I as you know I would really like to have Laura Kinsella on the podcast and you know maybe someday that will happen but like I have a lot of questions about just like the writing of this book yeah. like how long this must have taken This week's episode of Faded Mains is sponsored by EF Dodd author of Almost Perfect so this is a really fun book. It is book number three in the Not Looking for Love series. And this is about Dave Richardson, who is a bartender, and V, her real name's Vivian Walters who is a doctor and they've sort of gotten together in the background of previous books of the series, but this book goes back to the beginning of their relationship and gives us their whole story. And it's really satisfying Sarah, because it is one of the few romances I can think of that really puts like not just like class differences on Paige in like a real, like a real way, but also she's a doctor and he's a bartender. And so like sort of the like dealing with, you know, he had been really happy kind of in this job, although it's not really what he thought he wanted. So like kind of diving into his backstory and like what brought him to this place and then like sort of like the way his parents feel about it and like the way her family feels about it and then the way they each have to feel about like, Who are we together and how does the world perceive us? Yeah. And I thought it was just really like a really grown up romance, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, um, also, I would just like to point out that um, Indie Reads, which does uh, reviews for and obviously self-published books, gave this a really great review and said that it is a feel-good swoony romance full of blush-worthy moments. Um, part of those are that they're dating long distance and there's like a lot of uh, really fun. There's a very fun FaceTime. Perfect. Sex scene. Uh-huh. Well, you deserve nice things, everyone thousand percent um you can read Almost Perfect right now it's out this week in print ebook or with your monthly subscription to Kindle Unlimited thanks to EF Dodd for sponsoring this week's episode but let's start at the beginning with uh he liked radical politics and had a fondness for chocolate (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, a great first line. Surely one of the ni- one of the best first lines I've ever read. It just does the job all the way through, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really, really great. So, um, Shervo. silver tongued at the beginning. I mean. Can get any woman, can get anybody to loan him money, can get anybody right. to go into business with him, is a brilliant mathematician. He's right. known throughout the land as being like the greatest, the best, the most suave, the most Char- charming, the most talkative, uh, the most, the most, the biggest, most. the best. Yes. Like a king. Yes.
1: A when king. we say
0: all heroes are kings, we're talking about Chiro. Yeah. So it's fascinating the way that he is brought low, right? By like a medical. A medical thing that no one – so it's funny because I've heard um, someone say it's an aneurysm, but I also read it as a stroke. I, I read I, it as a stroke. Right. Like, I feel like that's, like, the the only possibility, really. Especially because his, his arm tingles. He loses yeah. his hand, his ability. Right. He loses – i I've had yeah. an aneurysm, everyone. It doesn't happen that way. So yeah. the – um <laughs> Right. Everyone's right. like, what? Yeah. Plot twist. <laughs> um, no, I'm pretty sure it's a stroke. And he – is left with... So, but what I think is really interesting... I don't think that we should elide that sort of beginning, right? Because yeah. there's some really interesting stuff that happens there. Yes. First of all, first and foremost, two math teachers across the land, whenever you say to people, you should learn trigonometry, <laughs> this is the reason why, in case you ever need <laughs> to understand whether or not a Duke, a handsome Duke, a handsome, rich, powerful Duke is... In a position of power, is in a position of being able to make himself understood. You need to be able to understand sine and cosine is what this book has taught me. So important, important math information here. Before I will say, like even though I did not reread the beginning, a really memorable part for me of his characterization. Mm. I think that we live in a time now where people are really afraid to make their characters be bad people or do bad mm-hmm. things, and he has a mistress who is married mm-hmm. on he, page for chapter one. Yes. And she is fully aware that she is married, and he gets her pregnant, and he does not care. I wouldn't say he doesn't care because it's actually really interesting the way that it's the way that it's drafted in the first chapter. He's like got his head on her like swelling body. Yes, he's he like knows he that says, this is happening. Yeah, yeah, he's like I love the changes in her body, but like her husband, the moment he gets home, she better bet him because. This baby is not legitimate and needs to be accepted by its father. Yes. Right? Right. Fascinating. So all this stuff happens, but um, he is supposed to be doing this paper with Maddie's father. And Maddie, because Maddie's father is blind, he is Maddie is basically his corresponding secretary. And so, um, but there is that magnificent moment in the beginning where... Chervo finally meets with both her father and And her. And with her, yeah. And he says, how long has it been since you've been, since you were able to see? And it's been like 18 years or something. And he says, so you can't, you don't know what your daughter looks like. And please remember, Maddie's a Quaker. And it's been made, a thing has been made of like, she doesn't, there are no mirrors in the house. Like, she doesn't look at herself. Like, when she goes to meet him, she thinks, she puts pearls in her, like, She has this hair that, like, it's Crystal Gale hair, right? It goes down to the floor. (laughs) Nobody knows what that means, but you and me, but fine. I know. Once upon a time. People can Google. So, like, and so they wrap, you know, she has her hair in a very, like, tight matronly bun. And she wears a cap, you know, a Quaker cap. And she is meeting the Duke and she thinks about, like, or she does. She wraps her bun in this, like, long strand of pearls. And it's... The only time she's, like, it's... Like the only ornamentation. Yeah, she's adorned, and it's like, she knows she shouldn't. She feels that it's sin, right? But it's to meet him. Like, it is so perfectly done, right? That she, and, but she doesn't see herself. She doesn't know what she, she, you know, she's looking at herself in, like, a, you know, a silver pitcher or something to try and figure out what she looks like. And um, and he says to her father, "Like, can I describe her to you?" And her father's like, "Yes, I want to know." And he describes her to the dad, and it is like they are having sex in front it's of so filthy, man. like it exactly. is unbelievably <laughs> hot. I know, I know. And Maddie, of course, is so uncomfortable. Right, everything is about it is like wrong, but so right. Mm-hmm. Right, And the way that she feels, again, is like this, I mean, Maddie's whole journey on this road of like being Quaker, right? And then like you're supposed to reject everything about the outside world is a really fascinating one. And we see this like push-pull in her from the very beginning. And the thing we realize about her is how stubborn she is. Right? Like, mm-hmm. and that. there's this way in which, because it's like, she'll just be like, well, it's God's will. <laughs> right? God, didn't you want to just shake her? I was really, f- I, I will tell you what, I was, I'm really fascinated by it and I can't wait for us to talk about the scene at the end. Oh, well. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. But so, um, so anyway, so he's like, silver-tongued and amazing and he like, basically woos, he doesn't, he doesn't want her, but he's like, It's just proof. What Kinsale is doing here is like this man with his words can get anyone at any time to do anything. What's fascinating to me is that he has this stroke. um, You know, he has the stroke simultaneously to the um, the, uh, duel. Right, yes. the book begins with a duel. Charles from you know Charles Scott love this, right? Mm-hmm. It begins with a, a duel with the with his mistress's husband, and the duel is I couldn't really tell. I didn't. I don't really. I don't think the duel if, makes the stroke. I think he's having. He has the stroke in the house or begins, and then the duel happens, right? And so it's really fascinating because Kinsale's is basically like it's not enough. Like, listen. Uh, right now like there is there is something to be said just about like this book as a text of its time where like as a writer she's just like he is going to have a stroke at the top of the stairs like when he is leaving his mistress and the mistress's husband is coming in to discover that there is a a, uh an affair happening but also we're going to have a duel and also let's throw in this like paper to the mathematics society (laughs) and also let's have you know this other thing happen like She's just, like, every every second page, something is, something wild is happening. When you read it, you're kind of like, it's too much. But by the end, when you see how it all gets woven right back in, mm. right? Like, that's the part where you're like, she's fully in control the entire time. Mm-hmm. There's no point at which anything gets dropped. I mean, and that's the part that to me is, like, the most astounding, right? Yeah. So he, um disappears and then we are left with maddie who then like months later i don't know it's been four or five months she is uh she returns she gets to the asylum and there is and instantly there is a sense of like the faded mates of it all yes right so we're Agreed. in yeah. we're in maddie's pov she sees him and she recognizes him and he and then we switch to Chervo's POV, or no, and then he grabs her and like makes a sine slash cosine curve, some kind of tangent. I don't know. I'm not a right. mathematician. <laughs> something from tenth grade math on a piece of paper, and she's like, "Oh my god, he's not crazy." Or it's not yeah. on paper. I'm sorry. He carves it with a knife into like a piece of wood or something, and she's like, "He's not crazy." There's right. like, he's trying to say something. Yeah. And then it's all about her trying to help him find language, like find a way to communicate. But what's fascinating, and this is where I want to go on my first tangent, Uh which is there are two things I thought about as soon as we switch into his POV and we hear him, we see him struggling to articulate himself. This man, this like man who has never been able to, he has been able to get everything he ever wanted. Through talk, right. Through communication, through talking and i thought of two things first of all i thought of ruby dixon <laughs> <laughs> fair as one does <laughs> and the reason why do you do you know why i thought of ruby dixon cuz when he hears her talk it's like gobbledygook on the page yes it's really fascinating yeah and as a reader i mean this is what we're talking about when jen said earlier like you like have to linger on this book like you you're slowed down by the reading because it every time you're in Chervaux's POV and Maddie talks in the early in the first, I don't know, 250 pages. You're like what she's is, saying. Yeah. You have to stop and read the words that are literally gobbledygook. And then like in your head, work out the sound to try and make sense of it. And sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. And you are in his head. And it is so deft. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And the reason yeah. why I thought of Ruby Dixon is because obviously in Ice Planet Bar- Barbarians, this is one of the things that I've talked about a million times. Whenever I talk about Ice Planet Barbarians, I'm like, the communication when you're in the POV of the alien heroes is really fascinating. And so I think a lot. I, in the moment, I was like, I, I have to imagine Ruby Dixon has read this. Like, this is. I, listen, a lot of me was like, who's read this? Claypus has read this. Kristen right, Cole has read this. Like the whole thing where like Derek Craven is like constantly taking Sarah's caps off. Yeah. Right? Winterborn, not five fucking minutes and he right? Like mm-hmm. like I there the fingerprints of like this are throughout so much of romance to me. Yeah. Once yeah. you read it, you can see yeah. it everywhere, right? Yeah, Elizabeth Hoyt, like that. All the, like, torture scenes in the asylum. Yeah. Like, there are There are so many of us. I would not surprise me if Carolyn... Uh, Carolyn Linden. Kerrigan Byrne. Kerrigan sorry, Byrne. if Kerrigan okay. Byrne had read this. Like, yeah, this is a real, clearly a historical text for so many. But the language the structure and the play of language yes. in those early scene in those early chapters in the asylum is really I mean like I've never seen it's equal. yeah one of the things I'll just pause and say is if you if that sounds like a little intimidating the audiobook is spectacular it is narrated so, yeah, by yeah so it's, yeah like well here's the thing he's narrated by Nic- Nicholas Bolton who I think is great and he it's he is the only narrator that's you know what i mean which i think is unusual for a romance to just have a, a man be the narrator but it's such it's like Chervaux's book right so oh, the thing 1000% the thing that is so fascinating about it and and i will like maybe i can record like some snippets of it so when you're reading it you're kind of like stopping and like saying it out loud and trying to make sense of it but when you hear it Right, like you're you're skipping the sort of decoding part, right? So that's everybody. That's what it's called when you are looking at a word and like breaking it down, like literally by sounds. You're like, what is this word? Mm-hmm. So you, as the listener of the audiobook, can skip the decoding and just get right to like, okay, I'm going to try and make sense of it. I'm hearing it the way like Chauveau is hearing it in his head, is and I it think more help. Like, is it clearer? I thought it was clear because here's the other thing is. And again, I would, I will admit to you, I am not a person, I read very fast. So I would not, for example, spend a whole lot of time as a reader lingering over, say, the difference between an em dash versus ellipsis. Right? Like, I'm like, whatever, it's a pause. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right? Nicholas Bolton <laughs> is some kind of classically trained actor. Yeah. And he... A professional, one might say. Yes, right? <laughs> is absolutely, like, reading the punctuation in a way that I did not, Interesting. right? So even the scene, like, so all of the scenes where he's, like, sputtering or pausing, you really are, like, immersed in that. Like, how his voice would sound or how he was, like, kind of struggling or, like, stuttering. You know what I mean? All of that mm-hmm. is performed for you. And so all of the ways in which, you know, like, I would sort of, I mean, you know, I was like, okay, he's, it's a speech he's talking and I'd kind of read it all at the same pace. Mm. Nicholas Bolton really is giving all of that space equal weight on the page to the words themselves. Interesting. Yeah. And I think it's, I will tell you, makes it seem even more brilliant. That's cool. I mean obviously the experience of reading I didn't I do not read in audio usually uh and so I read it in text and it is I mean it's it's remarkable I can I it's remarkable yeah. Yeah. and I think what's really fascinating about it is she doesn't yield like there's no she talk about a an author who trusts her readers to come along with her and She does not, there is no moment in this book where she bends, and that is really deeply impressive because I think, um, especially now, I think romance bends a lot, And, uh, and she does not, and that is very cool. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Alexandra Harvey, author of The Countess Caper, the second book in the Dainty Devil series. Jen, (laughs) this one really scratches basically all all my itches. Every one of them. So Lady Tessa Kilkenny's ramshackle manor house is filled with mice and snakes and peeling wallpaper and a passel of women (laughs) with nowhere else to go. She's gonna do anything to help them i bet she sure is she has her back against the wall one of them is her cousin and her cousin is with child and needs immediately to get to a midwife so tessa does the only thing that a girl in her position can do and she um steals a carriage from her neighbor she's a lady highwayman she is so she has done some light crime at this point and rourke noble the earl down the way Please, with that name. Perfect. So good. Uh, Rourke is like, listen, this woman may be a questionable criminal, but I do, in fact, need a wife. So, they strike a bargain. He'll give her the carriage if... She gives him her hand in marriage. Um, And then once that's done there, he starts to uncover all of Tessa's secrets, or at least that there are secrets. She is fighting off housebreakers. She is stealing from the aristocracy. Her crazy house is rigged with traps to discourage unwanted visitors. And she absolutely trusts no one, not even Rourke Noble, despite the fact that name is Destiny. He's got to earn it, Sarah. He's going to have to win her trust, and he's going to have to win her heart, and I believe in him. Perfect. If you would like to find out more about how this lady highwayman is going to take this carriage and this man to hell and back, check it out. <laughs> She's a dainty devil. I get um, it. I'm you with you. You can read this book for free with your monthly subscription to Kindle Unlimited. Thank you to Alexander Harvey for sponsoring this week's episode. <laughs> So I want to talk about Ape, and then we can get out of the torture scenes. Okay. Um, oh, and I want to talk about Conrad Roth. So, oh, I which will talk do you about want to Conrad talk about Roth. first? <laughs> well, let's end with something I like. So let's talk about Ape first. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. So Ape. Um. So Ape is the the person well, who has. Yeah, I mean he's his guard, but I think the thing, like Sarah was saying earlier, is. So you were like, you know, like, everyone thinks he's, like, violent. And once we are in Chervaux's point of view, we understand that Ape is antagonizing him and torturing and him. torturing him. Like, there are moments right? where Chervaux believes yeah. he will die yes. if he does not fight back. Yes. And so we then understand, like, it's not that this man is, like, you know, having violent outbursts as much as he is violently defending himself against the cruelty of this one guard. Right. And it's fascinating, right? Because Chauveau keeps this secret from everyone but the reader. Yeah. Maddie never finds out that Ape has harmed him. She suspects. She that suspects it, but he never. She shows never knows it. for sure. Yeah. And um, and of course, I mean, if I had one, I'll save it for the end. But like, so Ape okay. is really fascinating because. He is so cruel. And we know, right, that historical readers and anybody with any knowledge of history knows that, like, this can't be a perfect experience, right? Like, the asylum cannot be, no. like, kind and decent and good. Like, right. It, need, it, of course, was brutal. And so um, there's a really fascinating, there's a fascinating thing that happens here where um, Maddie doesn't like Ape. And like Ape really doesn't like Maddie when Matt because Maddie sort of takes over his job. Right. Right. Like Charvaux starts to respond to her in a positive way. And so her cousin says, Well, this wouldn't ordinarily be like proper, but since we're Quakers and you're never ever going to be into sex, like you like yes. there's there's no sex, like you are sexless as a Quaker lady, which right. false, but whatever. Um, he's like, You can be Charvaux you know, companion, I know not guard of. but like well and handler. it's also part of this like his forward thinking you know yeah progress- is, i mean quakers are cool it's very yeah it very progressive and it's like having mixed gender like sort of nurses mm-hmm. there are men and women in the asylum right, right, allowed to right. to hang together So, yes. So, but in this moment, what I want to get to is this and the animals, right? So um, Maddie and Chervo, like Chervo can barely speak at this point, but he is able to sort of force out some words and they have almost their first moment of like interaction where they are enjoying themselves Mm -hmm. when they each recognize that this man who's who has a name and I can't remember what it is Ape. is <laughs> basically like a he's a gorilla like he yeah. just he's he is he is a, an animal yeah and they both clock it and yeah. Chaveau of course knows because he's been treating him so unkindly and right and that's that's a euphemism and Maddie just like has this sense that yeah. there's something wrong right And so, and it's the beginning of what Jen refers to as men, referring to other men as animals. Well, and what he calls, there's a a Quaker later, Richard Gill, who he calls Mule. 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 Yeah. Right? And it's really fascinating because, of course, everyone thinks that Christian, what's his real name, everybody, which Christian and the Quaker, of course. Yeah. Um, I can't believe it took me out. Like, I literally was like, oh, wait, duh. Um, Um... that everyone thinks Christian is the animal, right? Yeah. So it's also just really fascinating the way, and it's also like you, when you have no power, right? When you have no power, mm-hmm. this, like kids know this, sometimes the only power you have is to call someone a name, is to name call, yeah. right? Especially when you have, here you have this man who was silver tongued, right? Like, so this is literally like the weapon he can wield. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and the whole time, and this is also, but, but also ape as villain, right. Is really fascinating to me because we are in Christian's head and he is speaking. I mean, in his head, his stream of consciousness, his thought process is like we, like we discussed sort of very, um, staccato the cadence is like, there's nothing silver tongued about it. And he is, he, he loathes this man so much. The only moments of, Complete clarity in his thought are that he will someday kill this man. Yeah, right. And of course, you know, like Sarah sits Europe. up like a Sarah's dog like- on the scent. And <laughs> like, I love a vengeance story. I Sarah love a man with online. vengeance in his heart. Yeah. So, so, um, and then uh Ape gets Ape gets what's coming to him in the sense that like he doesn't get to keep Christian there. Christian gets dressed. Maddie goes to Christian's house. And gets his clothes and brings them back to the asylum and takes him out of the, like, scratchy woolen whatevers and dresses him in ducal finery and puts on his signet. She steals his signet ring and, like, gives him his signet ring back. She, like, returns his humanity to him. Literally, right? It's great. (laughs) It's great. Then Jen started the reread. Yeah, well, at this point, though, this is like – I mean, it's true, you guys. It, it For me, that whole – all those scenes where he is, like, basically being tortured by the ape are so painful for me to read. And yeah. just, like, you know, like, modern medicine. <laughs> um, oh, wait, but Conrad Roth. Yeah, right, Conrad Roth. Sorry. Cressley Cole has definitely read this book. And the reason why I say that is because the Conrad Roth book where – and we, you can go back. It's Dark Means at Night's Edge. Conrad is yeah. um, – an. Essentially, a, he's a he's an addict. He's blood addicted. He's a vampire, um, and in his POV, he's it's the same kind of thing where he just yeah. like, right? Is, he is he is on he's in a cage, right? Yes. Like he he's his thoughts are just like banging around in there, yeah. And what Cressley does, she uses something really interesting related to tense. But what? But I I really honestly like I feel that I felt the echo there, yeah. Well And I think the other thing you need to know about, like Chevaux's narration then is as he gets better, right, yeah, and then, like there's a part where you can tell, oh, he's better with Maddie, but not with other people, right? Yep. So there's this you know you can see his comfort level depending on like who he's with and 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 it's really honestly fascinating and i I think that that's the part too that I think again, the audiobook does such a great job of showing the, like, that progression as well, right? Because we can hear it in his voice. We can hear it in, like, the tone of his voice, the anxiety, right? All that sort of stuff. So, you know, basically, he is desperately, like, and it's. I will say the first time I read it, when they go to his home for this hearing, it wasn't clear to me that he would never go back, right? Like, I was like, oh, he'll have to go back. And I think this is, like, the big, like, Act, like the big movement of the book is once you realize, oh, he's never going to go back there. Right. Right? So now what happens? Well, And you really and- are like taken into a whole nother world. Yeah. And, I mean, I think it's really interesting, right, because the first line of this book, which I already said, is like he liked radical politics, right, yeah. and had a fondness, a fondness for chocolate. And I think it's really interesting because I couldn't help but during the whole – all of this, the, I mean the whole book, 500 pages – um, the like radical politics kept sort of sticking with me because there is this just general sense of unease through the entire book that at any point somebody could come and strip their, their net. Yes. Right. Yes. And there's no safety net here for when, when somebody is declared mentally incompetent in, I mean, even today, right. Like, I mean, looking at Britney Spears, right. But like when somebody is, is when, when the, the, society, family, you know, your peers, whatever it is, decides that, like, you aren't competent. You are beholden to kindness of strangers. And and that is that sort of constant specter of what could happen if people didn't believe what we believe. And I think, again... Kinsale keeps us on this tightrope of panic almost. Like, I didn't, I will, I'm going to say, I loved this book. I did not like reading this book. It's all the deeply time. discomforting. It is unsettling reading this book because you constantly feel like he what's is amazing, in real danger. She- She's so interesting, though. Did you feel this way? Because from the beginning, like at the beginning, I was like, okay, this is beautiful. Okay, this is so cool. Like I'm, as a writer, I admire it. I can like, you know, think about it in a lot of different ways. But there were, you know, at the very beginning, I was like, come on, this isn't, I mean, like, how's this going to work? Right? And then you sort of suddenly start, she's so, she threads the needle so carefully and so perfectly because you slowly come to realize that Maddie and Chervaux are right. And Chervo is perfectly competent, like perfectly fine and perfect, like perfectly able to be a Duke, to run an estate, to do everything with Maddie at his side. Right. And then the like fear sets in, right. Like other people won't believe you. Yeah. So this is the part that I think, right. So after, okay. So if act one is in the asylum, then act two is essentially like negotiating his return Home, right? And the thing that's really fascinating about this is, you really get okay. And and this to me was like sort of something I don't think I quite really clocked into until like the reread, right? Like rereading it and re-listening to it this week. Mm. That in this middle section, his reliance on Maddie is complete because his own family he understands very quickly does not care for him and is trying actually is actively like wants him to be gone again. Right. Like he gets pretty fast that they are not in his corner. And, and what you see, and I'm, I was like really fascinated by it is that Maddie then in this second act two is the, the deeply competent one, right? Like her job is to take care of him She understands things he wants. She makes sure that things happen. She's able to sort of like sometimes run interference with his family, and you know, her. um, They don't know what to make of her because she's this Quaker, the thou Maddie girl, and it's just like spinster, right? And just as she's just like, this is all just a bunch of bullshit. I've got a, I've got a job to do, and I'm going to do it, and that is taking care of this man, right? And so it's fascinating because. Through that whole middle section, then we really get to see the ways in which, like, Maddie's stubbornness, right? Because now that she's out of, kind of out of the asylum and the ape and her cousin aren't there, like, she really does take charge of Christian. She is the one, like, taking care of him. And what we also see, though, is is that he then is like, okay, I'm not alone, Right? Like, mm-hmm. he, he is also, like, and this is when we see him really, like, aligning himself to her in this really, like, powerful way. Whereas she was just this, like, lifeline in the asylum, she becomes a person to him, I think, in this second act. And what happens is she's, get, like, prepping him for the wedding. Right? Like, she's teaching him the wedding vows. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's going to marry Anne. Trotman, <laughs> I remember because of the, you know the audio. He's like remembering it. And She's like making it really sing songy. She realizes that he can like repeat words if it sort of has the specific cadence. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Anne Trotman is like the seventeen year old girl who's like, "Well, you, or I Ann. think are are crazy, but I want to be a duchess." And it's she's what we also understand is like she is never going to care for him either. Right. And so they're at the church. (laughs) They're at the church. Right. And like, this is when Christian essentially like kidnaps Maddie. Like he like shuffles her out. They like escape through a door in, in the back, in the vestibule. They go over a fence. Mm -hmm. And, and this is when we see Christian like that change. It starts to him becoming the one that is competent. Right, right, and she is the one who is like because a little now bit they're adrift in the sp- world. Now they are the world forced to be worldly, and, she, and yeah. she's like, "What is the world?" Right? Yeah, I've never seen this before. But the thing that is really again like kind of beautiful at this point because you're like, okay, it's just these two against the world. Is she's like, "Don't you have any friends?" And he thinks she means like, "I'm a Quaker, I'm a friend," and she's like, Your are friends," and he remembers. He remembers that he has friends. Yeah. She, and gives I mean, she's, she's saving him. Yes. It's so interesting, because one of the other things that I think is really fascinating is the way, um, throughout the book, Cansell uses love, like the, like the feeling, the emotion. And I mean, the first time, Chervaux thinks so Chervaux basically tells Maddie he loves her in the, yes. in the asylum. Yes. And you can tell in the moment, like he thinks he thinks it to itself himself, I don't know, several, you know, I don't know what yeah. 20 pages before he actually says it. But he thinks to himself literally, like clearly, a clear sentence. I love her. Yeah. Right. And it's because she is kindness, right? right. She is light and like she is hope. She is right. all the things that she is, she is. In many, like, this may, it's going to be sacrilege in some ways, but she is God, right? Like, yeah. she, like, you can't help, religion is everywhere in this book, right? Yeah. right. And then later, um, still in the asylum, he says it to her. He says yeah. love. Like, yeah. he can't, obviously, articulate the whole sentence, but he says love. And you realize, like, love is not, this is not love, whatever right. this is, right? This is gratitude, this is... right. You know, package like is, yeah. yeah. It's so many other emotions that are packed into love, but it is not pure love. Right. And then as they sort of move out in the world, there are she does something that you very rarely see in romance where like people say love, but then they like don't really mean romance they don't really mean I love you. Right. Like, and in that moment, she says to him, when you, when you say, you just said, like, she asks, she asks, don't you have a friend? She frames it as, is there not one friend who loves thee? Right. Like again, friend in the double meaning. Right. But I mean, these kinds, the way love is presented constantly, but um, she says to him, I want to read it to you. She says, Chervo, I have received from the Lord a charge to love thee. Yes. Right? And she says it. This is, you know, I don't know, 50% of the way through the book. I am, you know, thou art my husband. I am thy wife. Helps meet with no rule but love, love between, between us. us. It's a wedding vow to him. Yeah. Yeah. She says it to him. And then, except the problem is is that later on she says to him, don't worry about it. I don't trifle with love. It's like there are different, Kinsale is saying like there are different loves here. Like there is the love that we are required to have through the presence of God. And then there is like, I fucking love you. And one is far more dangerous than the other. This week's episode is sponsored by Lumi Labs, the creators of Microdose Gummies which honestly might have helped everybody in this book. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, probably. Who doesn't need a gummy every once in a while? Um, um, Especially like Christian. Just like take him down ever since. Just calm down, everyone. Just calm down. (laughs) Um, Everybody, you, we've talked about the benefits of microdosing, right? To capture your attention and your interest in just sort of, um, you know, kind of managing your day to day life. And so this is um, something you could always check out by Google, like Googling microdosing. dosing. Um, it's commonly like the benefits are really like that creative boost, just enjoying the moment. For me, it's been a big help with sleep, especially as I've been sick this past month and just like kind of managing sometimes just like my anxiety about how sick i've been um so this is something that you can definitely check out and these gummies have been a real lifesaver to me microdose Gummies are available nationwide. They come direct to your door. To learn more about microdosing THC, just do a quick search online or you can go to microdose.com, learn more and use the code FATEDMATES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in show notes as always, but again, that's microdose.com. The code is FATEDMATES and you get 30% off your order, which is a pretty great deal. Thanks to Lumi Labs for sponsoring this week's episode. So they escape, right? Like, they're on the run. And you're kind of like, how's this going to happen, right? Like, they're in the carriage, and she's literally like, we don't have money to pay this carriage. We jumped into this guy's Oh, pack. no. Right? And he, like, looks down at his shoes because he's dressed in his wedding finery and looks Nonsense. at the buckles. Nonsense shoes. And is like, he's like, money. These, these are money. So... They get to they go to uh, we L- should all have like emeralds on our shoes. I know. They go to Ludgate Hill, which is I guess some neighborhood, and he recognizes a place that he's bought jewelry before. For so he's yeah. So the, the you know, the hack owner is like, You guys can't go together. One of you have to stay here, so I get paid. And so she thinks she's gonna go do it because remember, she's the competent one. She's the she one can who talk, who could talk. And he's just like right and he goes oh uh, this, this, this is where the Sherry is. This is where it starts. Yeah. Because this is when you're like, here, this man realizes that his presence is enough. Is enough. I can just nod at people and glare at people. And if they know who I am, that is going to work. Yeah. Right. And it's also the place where he has like the epiphany of epiphanies, which is he realizes that he is meant to marry Maddie. Right. Mm Like it, like it, any, and it's, and it's like a fog is clearing from his brain. It's mm-hmm. like, this is the person I need to marry. And he buys a ring with the money and he takes the rest of the money. And he is basically like, she's the one I'm gonna marry. And she's just like, no, this well, is crazy, she's like, right? Absolutely not. Yeah, of course not. We cannot, and like I think we have to talk about this here because yeah. we have to get to it. We can't, we can't yeah. like, keep pushing it off. But like Maddie's conflict mm-hmm. in this book is I am a Quaker, mm-hmm. and you are a Duke. Like you're a child of the world, or whatever. Yeah, That's, yeah. You are money and power and debts and yeah servants and wig powder and wealthy people and waltzing and silk dresses. And, and by and the I way, I am even if the none of that was true, sugar she, bonnet. She can She cannot be with someone who is of that world, right? Like it's the fr- well. She refers yeah. to him. There's this great moment that's like yeah. a laugh out loud funny for historical romance readers at the very beginning where she's talking to her father and she says, how could you possibly like trust a person of his ilk? And she's like I know. disgusted by disgusted him. Disgusted like, by his him. Ilk. And she's like, he's a duke. You know, yeah. like he's just right. grossed out by – she's grossed out by him. Right, right. And she takes her religion so seriously that – and like is pure – like it is – She is distilled – Yes. By Kinsale into this, like, almost in the hands of a lesser author would be flat yeah. kind of, like, identity. Right. To the point where, like, later in the book, in the, like, four to five hundred pages, <laughs> the king turns up at Chervo's house for a party. And Maddie refuses. And Maddie to, refuses yeah. to bow to him. Yeah. Which, like, or hello to him. Which, yeah. like, woes are. Right. But the the religion of it all, the sort of Quaker identity of it all is really fascinating because through the whole book, I'm thinking, how do the How does this this going to work out? out? Yeah. Because they are so at odds. Yeah. So this is then again, like another turn happens. Right. So he remembers his friends and he – so they show up at his – and this part, listen, you guys, the, the water work start. I'm mean, not My even be able to explain this, right? So they, he shows up at his friend's house, and these dogs upstairs start going fucking crazy. Uh, as per last week's episode, one of the dogs' name is Devil. Devil. They're his dogs, right? His friend has been told that Trevaux is dead. And so all would of a sudden- Would he take the dogs? Would he take the dogs? And so like, you know, his friend's like, what the hell's going on? And then there is his best friend. I mean, like the whole- And then there's this other guy, like, and the three of them are like reminiscing. Well, there's and a colonel. A and colonel. then we find out one of the friends is a vicar, which I didn't realize before. No, yeah. So this is the friend. It's like, he's like a vicar in the way that like, he's like the cold dumbass friend. He's like friend ordained be, on the internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's like Michael Stipe marrying- <laughs> Francis Bean. Like and, me. Um, I, too, am on by the and, internet. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just like and, – and it seemed to me, if I have it correctly, that Chervaux gave him that job, right? Because yeah, that's what it seems like because later that's how yeah. they get around they, – yes. they sort of start to suggest that perhaps the marriage isn't legitimate because it has been performed by this person. Well, and what here's what is fascinating. They So, basically – they're reminiscing, you know, and, and it's like Maddie all of a sudden is now not the only person on Team Chervo, right? Yeah, which These, is really nice, right? Yes. Her, real heroine's journey shit here. Yeah. Like Chervo is finding his community. Yes. And sh- and they welcome her. Like there's a mm-hmm. way in which they're just like, okay, you saved him. Sounds great. Well, they do sort of mock her for a little bit and I enjoy oh, sure. it. sure. Of course. So anyway, she goes to bed. You know, she's like, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm going to need to find a way to get to my thing. In the meantime, they have met this Quaker named Richard Gill, and she tell, she talks to uh, Richard in this, like, train station and is basically like, I'm going to need your help because I am in charge of this man right now and I'm going to need help. Will you take this as your, you know, I forget what it's called, some Quaker thing, where if you mm-hmm. pledge to do it, you're like, I'm committed to really doing this thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so... Chervaux and Maddie, like, take off and leave Richard Gill behind. And she goes to bed. She's like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. This whole thing is just exhausting. And um, Chervaux sits and gets his friend. Is it Dawson? I can't remember his name. Something like that. Gets him a little drunk. Realizes. And then basically, like, is able to communicate, like, I need to marry her. And you need yeah. to Yeah, and he's happen. like, well, I'm not ordained for nothing. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, don't worry, I got you. Yeah. And, and the thing that I... Was, and I don't know if you had this experience, but when he was with his friends, Sarah, I really found myself thinking like, are they gonna betray him? That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. I uh did not have that. Well, I think it's because at that point, you really realize his whole entire family has is so terrible to him, right? Yeah that I was kind of like, what if these guys aren't trustworthy either? So anyway, they basically uh, do Maddie pretty dirty, right? Like, they (laughs) essentially – I mean, they forge a letter to her from her father. Well, there's also this, like, random other Quaker who's around. Yeah, so Richard Gill, and they kind of, like, you know, they're like, well, well, he's going to go and talk to your father for you, and then, you know, he'll come back with a note. And, you know, they give her the note, and it's from Richard Gill saying, like, your father says you have to go with him. And she's like, oh, I guess I do. Maddie, you ding dong, Right? And then they essentially trick her into marriage by making her think like that the, you know, the brother-in-laws are after Chavot literally literally chasing them into the church and pounding on the door. And he's just like, if you don't marry him, they're going to be able to take him away. And it turns out, though, like it's this fascinating moment where – Again, like, Kinsale's writing is so powerful. Everything else sort of falls away. Like, they are literally pounding on the church And doors. you believe it. You believe and it. You You're believe like, it. this is urgent. This is urgent. Yes. But also, so here's my thing. In that moment, I really did have a moment. I think I still was, like, I don't know. I still, I don't think I, I had gotten to a place where I, like, believed that Chervaux would, like, machinate everything, was capable of machinating everything. And he was, like, he was that moment, he His wasn't. friends did it. And I remember sort of like reading it and really believing it. Yeah. And then afterward being like, hang on a second. Like, was that all Shervo? Like, no, I think it was together? his friends that did it. I think it was just his friends. Yeah. Like, he said, I need you to make this happen. And they make so it they happen. It. But I also think it's and part of the reason. he didn't feel bad about it because no. he was like, listen, I love this woman. Well, and I think it's also part of the reason the scene works because he probably was. Ultimately as confused as she was at some level about what was really going on, right? So anyway, they marry, they go to Chervaux's, you know, like Wales ancestral estate where he feels most comfortable. And then there's this like kind of magical interlude where they just are together and happy and like looking at the stuff in the castle. And the one like kind of stick, sticky part is when his friend tells her, like, don't consummate this marriage. Like, if you want out, th- that's what you're going to have to do. And Travaux hears it, and is it's really fascinating. You're like, wait, he understood that. Like, he overheard. And, and, you know, at this point, she's still telling people, like, talk slow. But he understood that advice, and he is pissed, pissed right? Because this is his wife. This is his wife. Well, he's in it to win it. Yeah, right. He's in it for the whole time. And then it starts to get really fascinating. Yeah, because they get to Wales, and in comes the aunt. Yes, swoops in and is basically like, "Well, this is an ideal. I would yeah. not have chosen this Quaker for you. <laughs> However, since she's here and fertile, yeah, let's get this business done. Uh huh. Right. Hire her. Get her some nice dresses. Hire her a dance instructor. Yeah. And like, let's get this business done. Um. And I think that that's really fascinating because what actually starts to happen here is Chervaux, the the aunt and Chervaux are sort of 100% back into like your job at this point is to get an heir. It's like you, yeah. if you want the dukedom back, if you want to retain control, like then you need an heir, you need money, you need power, yeah. you need a wife who can stand by your side, right? Yeah. And this is where we start to really see Maddie start to unhinge around the great inversion. And it's fascinating to me because now she she has always believed she must be, right? Like her bedrock faith in her Quakerness. Yes. And her commitment to, you know, her, you know, the the, the thou, the sugar bonnet, the. The um, you know, speaking using plain speak, speaking to everybody using Christian names. She tells right everyone. like the the footmen don't need to wear wigs, and nobody should call me Duchess. People need to call me Mistress. And- Please call me Mistress, and all the servants are like, "Uh, whoa, what? No. Right. You know." And I think because the thing- this this idea of Maddie, I think I think one of the the. One of the interesting things and one of the challenges I would say I had like mm-hmm. with Ma- was Maddie, right? Like, yeah. I think Chervaux is a perfect character in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, there's, as you said, it's his book. Yeah, Maddie was a little bit more of a struggle for me. And part of the reason why is because I think that this, I think Kinsale tees up this very, like, complex conflict. Or it's not, it's actually yeah. not complex at all, right? Like, Maddie is... Her Quakerness is so bedrock to her decision, the way she moves through the world and through life, that like there just seems to be no possible way to reconcile To reconcile it, yeah. The, the you know, her pure identity and this world that we know she's going to have to enter it in order for happily ever after to be believable. Right. He's not going to give it up to be a Quaker. He's not right? going to be a Quaker. He's never going to become a friend. <laughs> right. So, this is, I would say to me, a. Upon- like the reread was really rewarding. Tell me why. Okay. Cause I, here's the part that's like really fascinating. And he, here's what I'll say is number one is, and I, it's going to be long and maybe a little jumbled, but I'll tell you like my big epiphanies. Number one is I found the inversion of once Christian realizes they're coming after his money and Maddie is like, starts to like you know, Quaker freak out. Like what, what you (laughs) need to do is pay your, pay your debts and and do the right thing. And he's like, wrong. We really remember she had been the competent one. And now we see her flailing in the world where he understands how the world has to work. Right. Like it's, and it's fascinating because, you know, you're kind of like at the, you forget how at the beginning he was so masterfully in charge of everything Right. And so to have him like be returning to that, of course, it has to be that way. You're going to take everything from this man. He has to be ascendant again at the end. He has to become a king again. Yeah. And so for her to kind of be like, so I was really fascinated by like the fact that like then she, who has been so competent, so knew her, like was on solid ground, is now like off of it. And so I was just really fascinated to see her kind of like, try to make her peace with the idea of, like, what if this is God's plan for me, right? Like, and and then, Sarah, and this was, like, I, I would say the thing that really upon the reread I had not really paid attention to, which is her Quakerness is very defined by her family, her and her dad, yeah, right? And so it feels very warm. Her dad who's, like, pretty relaxed. Like, yeah. It's sort of like, oh, it's yeah, fine. right. This castle's nice. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, I like math. <laughs> he, so her, it's very warm because you really feel that like when she's clinging to her Quakerness, you feel like she's really clinging to her father, right? In a way that kind of feels... Um, like it felt really real to me. I don't know. It felt really, I I was okay with it. So like, let me fast forward a little bit to the end, which is she ends up like going back. The friends convince her she has to like leave it all behind and she's going to go back. And she spends, I don't know, a couple weeks or like a month or whatever. Like, you know, I'm going to go and be a Quaker and I'm leaving this all behind. And she's going to have to write this letter, essentially saying everything. I want to spend like an hour on this letter. Yes. Well, here's what I was thinking about, which is. Chervaux, her father actually tells Chervaux, like, this is happening and you should come, right? Which is how you know he, like, is rooting for them. So Chervaux walks into the back of the meeting house and it is all men and Maddie. And I had this moment where I was like, oh, it wasn't her father. It was patriarchy,
1: mm-hmm. right? Like,
0: the entire to- the letter. Yes. yes. The letter is... A takedown of sexuality. Yes. Of, like, female sexuality. And there's this Pleasure. thing where she has been really dragging her heels on writing this. Well, because she makes the... Okay, wait. Because in the early part of the book, right? And when the fuck did she do it? I don't know. She's so pious the whole time. I don't know. <laughs> it was exhausting. But there's a moment in the early part of the book where she's like, I cannot... Oh, when... Um he the, the friends are like just tell your go home to your dad. Yeah. And tell your dad you don't know where we are. And she's like I can't do that. It would be a lie. I cannot lie. I cannot. And you're like come on lady, get it together. Everyone lies. But what's fascinating is that then this letter comes to pass inside this church with the patriarchy where she's supposed to say, like, I was wrong for feeling sexual feelings. Yes, fornication. Fornication. And then when he's like, fornication, it was love. I pledged you my love, right? I mean, ah, it's perfect. The line is is though, is she sat there and like, so before she writes it, it's like this line is like, she sat and listened and then she knew what to write, right? Like, so- but the, to me, it was this moment where I was kind of like, how is she – because I think for me, like, I really struggled as on the read of thinking, like, I am not necessarily a huge fan of the idea that what, like, the story Kinsale is going to tell is that, like, Maddie's going to have to leave behind her religion or her faith her in order. Right, her identity. And then when you get to the end and you realize, oh, these are just – a it's just another group of men telling her what to do. Yeah. Right. Well, and also there was this moment that I think Kinsale. Listen, it's brilliant. I think Kinsale gets here, and she's like, "Shit! Like she's she's not she, this woman. Clearly, is brilliant. She gets she sees what's the what yeah. the innate issue is with this this conflict. Right. The way that she solves it, though, for the reader is saying, in doing all in writing this letter, which. Yeah is supposed to be, you know, air quotes, like, capital Q Quaker. Capital T Truth. Capital T Truth. She is forced to, capital L, lie. Yeah. Right? And that, the lie before God, is the sin. Yes. Not the other. Right. Yeah. And that's that's how Kinsale unravels the conflict for us. Yes. Yeah. But it is tricky there. And no. I can absolutely see how, like, on a modern reread, like on a modern read. In fact, I just had a modern read of this. Yeah. The sort of like anti-capitalist, like, right. you know, preachiness of Maddie through the whole thing ends with her, you know, being a duchess and like, right? How do being you make that happen? With the king, yeah, and you're like, mm, really? Right? Exactly. But okay. <laughs> but and so they this- did do it on the floor of the library, so that was great. Yeah. <laughs> And in the maid's bed at the end. Which okay, she, oh, we don't need to talk about that poor okay. maid and her shoes. Yeah, I was like, listen, what are you guys doing? And i like, I guess I was like, well, she really is leaning <laughs> into being a duchess. Everything's hers. But listen, also, I think this is one of those moments where you and I have to say, like, it was 1992. Sure. So, like, this really is, like, radical politics. Yes, yeah. So I think the other thing about – that is, like, so beautiful to me about this book, and we really haven't talked about, it, is, like – We have a little bit like their relationship is when she is alone with him in the castle right before his aunt comes and before she is able to like sort of be herself with him. Like they are they are together and um, she is not sleeping with him like he's sleeping in his room and she's sleeping in some other room and she's really it's so God it's so good. She's afraid of ghosts and she is hearing these footsteps in the room above her. And she is convinced. And one night she just, like, freaks out. It's a thunderstorm. She's like, there's ghosts upstairs. She, like, rushes into Christian's room and is like, thunderstorms, ghosts. And he's like, what, Maddie girl? And the reason he calls her Maddie girl is because that's what her dad calls her. And it's so fucking sweet. Anyway, he takes her upstairs and he shows her, like, kind of like, you know, he, like, lights all of the lanterns, right? I mean, so romantic. Turns on the lights for her to show her. Um, you know, that there are no ghosts. And the whole time, of course, he's lying to her because he's like, oh yeah, this place is full the, of ghosts. Full of ha- It's definitely haunted. Definitely I mean, this place is haunted. There are such moments of pure gothic romance love. In yes. This, I mean, like Kinsale loved Jane Eyre more than <laughs> anybody in the whole yes. world has ever loved Jane Eyre and that is clear. Um, and no, the ghosts are perfect because she mm-hmm. is afraid of ghosts. Yeah, right. Right? I think that's the other piece of this, these, like, specters of, you know, yeah. of sin and judgment and and all of the rules and the trappings of these worlds that they are beholden to are all ghostly. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, like, my everybody, my favorite, again, I'm like, I'm so mad about it. I don't even like dogs, is mm-hmm. there is... um there is one ghost that he knows that is, like, this huge wolfhound. And if it shows up, it portends that the lady of chervo Castle is pregnant and that that child will live, like, live a, whole, a full life, right? Mm-hmm. And so then there's this part where Christian says, like, and he's kind of thinking, like, it, it was he saw it as a child and he's like, you know, and it's true because that sister is still alive. And then he, like, lists all of the children that died, right? Like, all of the, the children that, that, you know, his mother had that died. And it's, like, some, a lot of them. And you really have this moment. It's, like, the one moment where I had, like, this moment of, like, real sympathy for his mother, Mm. who, you know, at this point you're kind of like she's so evil and she's just, like, throwing her baby away. And then you're like, oh, yeah, this woman has lost eight children or whatever, yeah. right? Like there's a coldness there's to her trauma there. that is, like, built in from the trauma. Yeah. Like she cannot mother. And part of it is because of this story, yeah. right? So I think we have to talk about – I want to talk about two things and because of your rule that we should talk about the thing you'll like the best after. We're going to start mm-hmm. with – the mistress and the baby. Yeah. Which comes not out of left field but feels like, holy shit, I forgot well, this whole thing had happened. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you're like, oh, I forgot all about that. Right. Right? Yeah. But really has a he it really has a Dane and Jessica feel here. Yes. Like there's a moment yes. where you're like, Oh wait, this is written one year before Yes. Uh Lord a of Scoundrels. And, Lord of Scoundrels yeah. yeah, here we are. Um, so at the very beginning in chapter one, it's like, um, it's like Chekhov's gun, but more. Chekhov's pregnancy. Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Chekhov's. Uh, Chekhov's no baby condom. bump. No, no, gun. No, Um, so there's a baby bump in chapter one and then there's a duel because he's, um, cuckolded this woman's, uh, husband and then that's over because we are off to the races in an, as- in an asylum. But um, don't forget, please, that there was a baby bump in Chapter 1 because eventually that baby has to be born. And she is, and she is born to, I think it's interesting that a daughter, first of all, but second of all, um, she is born to the with a mistress who is now a shun who's the, who is now a widow a widow right but who's which is fascinating I oh yeah will just like kills well her. i mean it's clear why so yeah she's now a widow and she has been in she is rash this woman is rash she makes yeah. bad decisions and the reason why we know this is because she was just letting chervo lay around in her bed while she was married after right. sleeping right. with him in her husband's house anyway right. So she makes bad decisions. She uh she at some point admits to her dead husband's family, yeah, this wasn't his baby. Upon whom she is relying for money and right. food and shelter. Um this wasn't his baby. Uh and they kick her out. Yeah, because they can. Right. Exactly. So well, they kick her and the baby out. Again, she, your family can kick you out if they want to. Yeah. Right. And she turns up on the doorstep of Chirvaux's house. And well, she's like, Well, they meet in like, isn't it Covent Gardens yeah, or something? First? Oh no, somewhere. she does. Yeah, somewhere. And she, no, then she, she does, shows up, doesn't she? I think they meet somewhere first and then she shows up. Yeah. Whatever. She shows right? up and she's like, Thank God, you yeah. are not dead because I need a husband. I need money because we need to and send the baby away. what I have. Well, first right. she says, I need a husband. And look, I have a baby. And yeah. it's yours. And yeah. it's a girl, so don't worry about it. Right? Yeah. And he's like, no, I'm married. And she's like, you can't be married to Quaker. Oh, come on. Come Get on. it together. That can't be real. Well, but he's married. And she goes off. And he's like, oh, shit, there's a baby. Yeah. And then she gets an offer of marriage at the end of the book. or And 100 pages from the end of the book. <laughs> she gets this offer of marriage. And she sends him a note that basically says, like, if you don't want this baby, I'm sending it to, I need to, this baby needs to go somewhere. It can't come with me to my new marriage because my new husband doesn't know it exists. Um, How do I get it to Scotland? You're going to have to pay for that. Right. I mean, like it's very cold and cruel. And I mean, this is a a problem with other women in the early nineties, but it's cold and cruel. And he's like, I don't know. Uh, the, and then, like, the baby comes to him. She sends the baby and the governess and, like, the wet nurse, right. not the governess, right. to his house. Right. And this all happens the night of, like, the big— In chaos. Right. Well, it's the night the king's there because this is going to be the night of like the Everything happens at the ball. Yeah. Like, all the money stuff, right, is all this machination. Listen, I don't know. Kinsale got to page 450 and was like, I got to wrap this shit up. Yeah. We're having a ball. <laughs> like I got to make everybody put everybody in the same place and see what happens <laughs> right and Maddie sad. is the one who discovers this girl this, the wet went and with she this knows baby. instantly this yeah. baby is is it's, his and she's just like kind of wrecked and you yeah. know have flounces and the but this baby he has this oh god it's listen, so beautiful listen I don't need a baby in a romance But this moment where Chervote goes to him and it's like he looks into his daughter's eyes and he sees her, like, there's a moment where we flash back to, like, the the lyric structure from the very first act where he can hear her thoughts, but maybe they're his thoughts. Like, it's sort of a, you're not sure who's thinking it, but it's like the light within him, like, sees something in her. right. And then the, the wet nurse is not there. He, like, sends the wet nurse to get food. Yeah. Because she right. hasn't eaten. Right. And he picks her up, the baby, and he lays down in bed and holds her on his chest. Yep. And it's so perfect. It is. And in that, like, moment of pure paternal love, right? Like, yeah. whatever Literally, that is, like, it just gets turned on for him. Like, he thinks to himself, like... I will always love Maddie. Yeah. Right? Like, it It will always be Maddie. Yeah. And there's some, it just all clicks together in this, like, again, this kind of universe of love. There are so many different mm-hmm. ways that we talk about love and we experience love and we think about love and we use love in the world. And Kinsell hits every one of them. Yeah. I mean, so then it's, like, it, it's just, like, but so also Diana is the baby, right? That's the way he, like, the way he feels about her is then a huge reason why he is compelled to, like, go finally and tell Maddie the truth about, like, his feelings for her, but why he needs her, right? Mm-hmm. And this need he has for her now is not just because I am unprotected in the world but because Diana is literally un if i uh, they world, will right? they will if they will we, hurt her. you don't come back like if we don't yeah. stand they will hurt her yeah i mean it is it's amazing beautiful. it really is it's beautiful, yeah, it's beautiful because beautiful. of the layers of and also there is this very real sense that like love in a lot of ways is Chervaux's religion like he mm. comes to god this way yes. yeah um And it's I mean, this is this book is about it's a it's a it's religious in a lot of ways. Small R religious. Yeah. I mean she's a Quaker. Like there is a there is a sense of stardust in this book. Yeah, the part that like there's a point where he he's talking to Richard Gill, right? Who's like gonna take Maddie away. And we haven't even talked about that asshole. Yeah, and I don't know that, like, we really need to. Like, no. he's, he's, like, such an interesting foil, right? Uh, because, of course, Chervo is, like, like so, like, are you kidding me, this guy? <laughs> but it's, he does say to him as she's leaving with him, like, she's afraid of thunderstorms, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, like, and then he's, like, but I'm not going to tell him about the ghosts. Like, right? And, <laughs> and And he'll never find it out on his own. And he'll never make her laugh. And it's really interesting the way that, like, we see, like, the, you know, keep it. I mean, the thing that's kind of brilliant about this book is, like, when he at the beginning is, has had the stroke and cannot communicate. And it's just this, like, violent thing. Mm -hmm. And to have him be so tender at the end. And to have him be so, I don't know. It's like a really amazing transformation. Like, his character arc mm-hmm. is so beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. It's, it's his so book. perfect. It's his book. It's his book. Yeah. Um. I also want to just point out that this man has this pirate smile that he has, <laughs> <laughs> which is my Roman Empire. <laughs> Amazing. Um, listen, there are a couple things that happen here that I love. I love that Kinsale knows the job. To the point where she knows where even this man who cannot articulate himself verbally can throw a murderous look Oh yes. and send literally anybody back a dozen steps. Yeah. He I love that he might not be able to tell her he wants to take her to bed, but man, can that man undress Ooh, her yeah. with his eyes whenever he wants. <laughs> and that smile that he gives her, which is described as a pirate smile, I mean. Well, and listen, when they have sex, it's amazing. It is, like, religious. Yeah. It really is. like a, oh. It's like a sacrament. Well, that sex scene where she talks about, like, he finally, I mean, finally, she says she's not going to consummate. And literally that lasts, like, 12 pages. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then, oops, we're consummating. And she's thinking to herself, like, I should say stop. Like, I should say stop, stop. Like stop letting me touch your face. Stop letting letting me love you. Stop letting me kiss you. Stop letting me feel the way I feel. Stop, you know, like it's hot. And then he sort of he talks her into, or he convinces her to admit that he yes she wants that she him. wants it right. And she's constantly le- and then she just says like over and over, I want the, I want the, I want the. I mean, it is it's amazing. Yeah, hot. it's so good. It's great. It's great. And I mean, these do not come to this book for long sex scenes. Like it is 550 pages and they're, you know, it's not, it's not full of sex, but these two, as the kids say, are horny for each other. (laughs) Yeah, they are. It's, I think the thing for me, and it's really interesting is. I think it's like a real exercise in. Like my favorite kinds of romances, right. Are like. How are these two ever going to work it out? Mm. And I think the thing that is, like, so amazing about this book is up until the very end, I don't know, like, there. this book continually surprised me, I guess is what I'll say, right? Like, when you kept saying, like, what's it going to be for 200 more pages? I'm like, well. I know. I would check in. I'd be like, right? 150 more pages. I still don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and exactly. And that's the part where... There's a sense of like fullness to this book, mm-hmm. right? Like that, there really is like so much. I don't know. Like there, it it's just so. I don't know. It's like I don't know. I guess I just feel like I've been reading a lot of a lot of things that do not have. Okay, let me say, Let me tell you a thing. I tell my students all the time. You'll laugh. Maybe I've told you this before. We talk about symbolism or whatever, and I'm teaching the kids this. And I say, like, you know, here's the thing. Like, you don't have to pay attention to this stuff if you don't want to. But I was like, let's say my friend Sarah and I go to a restaurant. Have Mm -hmm. I ever told you this before? Mm -hmm. And I was like, you love cooking. I don't. You can identify all of the things, the ingredients in the meal, and I can't. But I can still tell that I have eaten something delicious. I can Mm -hmm. still tell that this chef – really has spent a lot of time crafting something amazing in the kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing about reading this book is it is so filling. And I think it's because like the there's so many things to talk about. Like we didn't even scratch the surface. Like we could have had Cade on and had a totally different conversation. And it's like but the ways in which this book just really took them seriously, took their story seriously, mm-hmm. took this huge kind of cast of characters Took religion and capitalism and, you know what I mean, like lost children and ghosts. And everything feels like nothing felt extra, nothing felt cheap, right? It just all Mm -hmm. felt like, I don't know, it just felt so like a grown-up, right? Yeah, it really did. And it felt grown up in a really interesting way because as much as it begins with all these kind of like wild threads. Yeah. And you think to yourself like, oh, we're going to go on one of these wild these wild right. rides, right? Like Georgina right. Anderson throwing cockroaches at a, you know, right. Right. at a, you know, cockroach and I'm sorry, throwing radishes at cockroaches, right, on the boat. It feels right, it feels like in this moment where at the end there were two things that I wish had happened, right? I wish he'd killed Ape. Yeah. Right. And I wished that we'd seen the asylum reconciled, yeah. right? And, but the truth is, is that this is too grown up a book for that. Yeah. Those things can't happen. Yeah. They could, they can't happen in this book because that's not the world that this book is written in. Like this book is written in a world where like. The asylum continues to be terrible for people there. And like ape gets to survive because that's what happens. The other part that was really fascinating about this book is, and again, it's like one of those things where we felt this way when we read, i at least I did, when I reread Gentle Rogue. Like, I was like, oh, I've seen the iterations of this, but here it is, mm. is at the very end when Maddie is, like, sort of walking to the meeting house and she's with a woman, a friend, and so I hadn't really clocked the whole, like, oh, no, this is just, right, like, the dukedom is patriarchy on one side and the friends are on another, right? And it's the scene with these two women, right? So it's his aunt and her her Quaker friend, Constance, I think, of course, mm-hmm. something like that. And her, the aunt's like, oh, you're doing your cute little good works? What's mm-hmm. in your basket there? You're going to feed 10 people? You could have fed 10,000. And I found myself really thinking of Winterborne, right? Mm-hmm. That this is essentially the exact same speech that, um, that Helen gets, right? Like – think about what you can do with that man's money. And it was really interesting to see that at the end in the epilogue that that is true but it is not easy for Maddie, right? Like she understands that like there's it's not so black and white. If all you have is like the money you make and what's left over you give away. If you if the money is everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I found it to be really um you know respectful of the idea in the end, right? That like, if what Maddie always believed is that if she was doing what God wanted her to do, then she would be happy. And again, like the way this all gets reconciled is like, she understands that she and Christian are meant to be together. And that is that, like he, that is God's plan for her. Yeah. Right. With nothing but love between them. Exactly. Well, I didn't hate it. (laughs) No, I mean, wow, I'm really, really glad that we read that. It was, I loved every minute of it. I had a really bad week and this was, this was a magnificent diversion. And uh, yeah, this is what I said when I read it. I said, I remember the romances that make me feel this way. Yeah. It made me feel the way romance has made me feel in the past. And it, those books are rare. They're rarer than I wish they were, you know? Right. And, you know, that's always been the case, right? But like, that's, I'm always chasing the high of like that. And, and reading this, it, it it was, it just felt like this, like this is what I come to romance for. And to have it sustained over 600 pages. Oh. I mean, a gift, right? Six words in a book, but this one it's just nonstop. Yeah, this one is for that vacation that you're taking at some point in the in the winter, where you're just gonna cozy up and you're Mm. you want a book to just like dive into, fall into. Yeah, Um, a real joy, a real joy. So our next read is Roan Parish, right? Yeah, rend. That is rend R E N D. Yeah, and uh, we'll be reading that probably next month sometime. Yeah, Uh, next week will be an interstitial, and there will be other things coming your way. And uh, we like radical pop politics and have fondness for chocolate. (laughs) Um, Speaking of radical politics, it's election week. This week, if you have, uh, you might have an election in your um, community next week, Um, election day is coming and uh, you should go out there and vote and vote for Ohio, vote for uh, candidates who don't want to ban books and who don't want to ban bodies. And uh, we support you. Let us know if we can, you know, shout about anybody on our facebook or our instagram we don't have facebook we just made that up on our like, on our instagram or our twitter or whatever we do whatever we um do. i'm sarah mclean and i'm here with my friend jen prokop and we are faded mates you can find us at fadedmates.net if you super duper love us and wish you had like one more episode every month you should head over to our patreon uh, at patreon.com slash FadedMates and learn more about how you can join our private Discord, get access to our special uh, Banter Plus episode every month and also our 5-Minute Firebird videos with authors who we think are great and generally people who we think are great. All that is at patreon.com slash FadedMates You can also find us on Twitter at FadedMates, on Instagram at Mates pod on threads at FadedMates. No, on threads on th- Reds at ThetaMatesPod and on BlueSky at ThetaMates.net I don't we're, doing know. we're it everywhere everybody. because we're just trying to figure out where you guys all are <laughs> and uh, as always please uh, help our sponsors by going over and reading their books and um, we love you we hope you are you are enjoying your lives <laughs> we hope that you have friendly dog ghosts yeah exactly telling you that everything's going to be fine Keep your babies warm. We just don't want them to be cold. I know. They're wrapped in coats and shawls. It's amazing. Anyway. bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.